Welcome to Books on Air, the podcast that tells the story behind the book. It includes insights from authors about how they compose their work, what inspires them, and what they hope you'll take away from their book. Here's your host for this episode of Books on Air, Suzanne Harris. Welcome to the Books on Air podcast. I'm Sloan Fremont filling in for Suzanne Harris. This is a podcast where listeners get the secret story behind every book. Joining me today is Glenn Just, author of the book, Image Transformations of the Brain Mind, Experiencing the Emergent Supervening Self. This book demonstrates how each person can interpret dreams with meaning unique to themselves. Glenn, welcome to the Books on Air podcast. Thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Yes, and this topic of dreams is so interesting to me. So I've been looking forward to our conversation today to really dig in this with, with you. So let's start out by telling the audience just a little bit about yourself and what led you to write your book, Image Transformations of the Brain Mind. Well, I'm a, a retired professor from the Minnesota University, uh, State University system. Mm-hmm. And I've had multiple careers uh, and spent a lot of time working with people in the correction system who have had behavioral problems and, and uh, various types of mental illness, uh, chemical dependency, and so on. Mm-hmm. So throughout my, my life, I've, I've taught and researched and, and developed uh, treatment programs mm. uh, in these areas. Uh, and when I wrote my autobiography in, in 2009, I realized that the type of experiences I've had throughout my lifetime are rather unique in that they, they go across uh, a, a vast number of, of, of altered consciousness experiences that people have historically and across the world and in different cultures. And my background is in, is in psychology, sociology, and anthropology. So I've, I've moved across world cultures uh, historically I spent uh, a fair amount of time in inner city with inner city people with the department, of, uh, the old department of health, education, and welfare. Mm-hmm. And about ten years um, teaching on the reservation, doing work with Indian uh, students, uh, becoming familiar with the uh, kind of abuses and histories they've had, uh, mm-hmm. and and my introduction to shamanism and with was with the, primarily the Winnebago and the Lakota people. So I, I've had a, a bit of a unique background. Uh, I had my, my first altered experience about a year and a half of age when I had a near-death experience and the doctor uh, pronounced me dead and I went off to what I described as a journey to heaven, typical tunnel type of, uh, of experience where you see light at the end and figures show up that I identified as... Uh, angels but they were dressed like my aunts and uncles and, and uh, about the same age and this was at age one and a half that this happened to you it was one and a half and uh, I confirmed that because I thought it was it was at age three but my brother is six years older than I am and uh, and checking with with my parents and and the doctor I was about a year and a half old oh my gosh that's amazing well and your so your background is just amazing I mean so many things that you've said there um, are, are, as you said, multiple careers, I guess, as you introduced yourself, but <clears throat> so much interesting, interesting background there for, for today's conversation, let's maybe also start out with telling us a little bit more about what led you to start working with your own dreams and dream scripting. 
Uh, I had um, a, a difficult childhood where I was really uh, abused uh, and mm-hmm. developed what we typically call post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I had two really uh, debilitating nightmares. And when I uh, got out of the service, entered the University of Minnesota in 1957, I put myself under a lot of stress. I was trying to take 22 hours of credits and, and work almost full time, which was insane. Yeah. And so the nightmares came back. So I was having two and three nightmares uh, uh, nightly. And, and of course, I was losing energy. I was getting tired. And, and so I decided that I, I should learn how to control them. Mm-hmm. And I had had uh, played with uh, hypnosis as a high school student. Uh, hip, hip, I, I bought a book for 25 cents at the local library sale, <laughs> practiced hypnotizing my uh, my friends and so on. So I was aware of self-hypnosis. So I began to practice self-hypnosis. And I, uh, with without any familiarity with uh, the dream scene or, or the research, I started scripting uh romantic dreams and substituting those for my nightmare so Mm. when a nightmare would start i would automatically uh, my brain would automatically uh, produce a a romantic uh, kind of movie like scene uh, for replacement so after doing that for a a few weeks or a, a couple of months my brain would automatically create such a scenario so i was free of nightmares for 20 years from, from uh, 22, age 22 to uh, 42, when I let them return because I wanted to experience naturally again what, what my brain was doing. Uh, but what was unique about that, the, the Freudians who dominated American psychiatry said that you, you, you can't do that. That's going to mess you up and you're going to become more pathological. Well, I was getting really positive benefits from it all. And so I thought they were kind of full of hooey. And uh, <laughs> I went to the library and I read the psychiatric reports, more of the same. You know, and I uh, had started in the military uh, reading Freud because uh, some of the people I was, was um, in the service with uh, were uh, graduates from Yale and Harvard and uh, MIT and New York University, a lot of nice schools. Uh, that knew a heck of a lot more than I did about almost everything. And so they got me reading Freud, and and that was uh, my initial journey. But what I was experiencing was totally in contrast with with Freudian uh, theory and treatment. So to move forward quickly in time, I sent uh, uh, J. uh, Allen Hobson my books in uh, 2012, uh, and he's a, a Harvard psychiatrist, also an internationally known dream researcher. Mm-hmm. And he was impressed by them and, and recommended them. So I met with him uh, two weeks at his uh, various residencies. And we dialogued uh, almost daily for about six months. And and he confirmed that uh, my self-therapy was uh, something that, that the uh, psychiatric community had really ignored for a long time and, and re-supported the use of hypnosis, which I was using. Uh, as well as dream scripting. And so he, he wrote a book uh, called uh, Ego Damage and Repair uh, after our meetings. And he has 35 pages of case study in there of my own self-therapy, mm-hmm. uh, really supporting what I did in, in negating the, the whole Freudian approach. That's amazing. 
that, so you, you were having these nightmares and you, through your own self-discovery, were able to, can you explain what dream scripting is just in a couple of sentences, maybe for those who aren't familiar with it? Yes, you, you uh, decide to have a certain kind of dream ahead of time, mm-hmm. and then you have that dream, so you just substitute it. So uh, you're telling your subconscious? I, I, call, I called it dream programming because I wasn't yeah. familiar with the term scripting at the time. But I, I just decided that uh, I, I needed a, a nice, pleasant dream. I'm 21 years of age when I started doing this. A, a young man, and I'm healthy, and, and, and I like uh, women. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, oriented to, to having a, a life that includes uh, women and, and wife and children and so on. Right. And so I, I decided on, on that um, particular scenario and, and introduced that. So by being able to control what my brain was producing with self-hypnosis, I, I, I created what, anything that I wanted to. And, and said, when, when the nightmare starts, the, the dream will substitute for it. I mean, this is the whole mental set that I right. had. Right. And, and then, of course, that, that kicks in. And, and I did that for 20 years. But after just a very short period of time, a couple of months or so, my brain would automatically uh, create that kind of a, of a movie scenario. Right. And substitute it. And so you're te- you're, are you programming then your subconscious mind? prior to sleep is is that how it works to get your brain to make the shift into the more positive dream that you you were choosing uh i you need to learn various aspects of mind control okay so as i led up to what what i did is that i i to learn self-hypnosis i i would say things like um I lay down quietly, relax without any disturbances and say your arm or leg, my arm or leg is rising. You're not making it rise. It's rising on its own. So what I was doing is, is teaching the automatic primary part of the, of the old brain to act on its own. Mm-hmm. And, and then by remaining lucid, meaning that I was aware of what I was doing while I was doing it. Right. I observed myself uh, doing these things. So anyway, I use self-hypnosis to learn mind control. And if you think of, of mind control to say the way some Buddhists do or, or yogis do, mm-hmm. uh, they can control the imaging uh, in their dreams or when they're awake, what's going through their minds. And, and so I, I learned how to do that uh, on my own using the mind control techniques of self-hypnosis. That's so fascinating. And so you had, you were having these nightmares. You, you made some choices to, to experience something different in, in your life. And you were able to use self, self-hypnosis to re, re, retrain your, your mind to have different dreams, which and then, then in turn, because we all know if we have having nightmares or not being able to sleep, I mean, that is, that impacts our lives so greatly. And so when you, when you were doing this, then, so with dreams, maybe this is the better question with dreams, we all dream every night. And, and is that right? Everyone does, we but have, maybe we, we just have don't have probably between 25 and 50 dreams every night. And what we now know is that we probably dream about six hours of our eight hours of sleep. 
So most of our sleeping time, the majority of it, we're dreaming, whether we remember it or not, when we wake up. Right. And it's, and it's yeah. at different levels of, of complexity. Uh, right. Right. Because I, I know I've experienced where sometimes I'll, I'll dream something that felt like I'm dreaming it right before I wake up and I have such a vivid memory of it. But then I'm, it, I also there's times I wake up, I'm like searching for the dream. Like I know I had a dream, but I can't remember what it was. And I'm kind of trying to search for it to try to remember what it was prior to waking up. You need to do that consistently because normally we we dream and, and the functions of dreams don't need it a memory to be carried over into waking. And, and so you really have to practice uh, observing your dreams, remembering them when you wake up. Do it right away as soon as you yeah. are in the process of waking up. Uh, and, and what I uh, discovered over time is that being lucid in, in dreams... I could stay awake for uh, one or two complete dream cycles. Uh, a dream cycle is about 90 minutes, 70 to 120 minutes. It's 90 average. Mm -hmm. So within that, I typically have nine different dreams that I remember. And I also ah. have sort of a, a pause or a dead time there that yogics, yogics and, um, and, and Buddhists have various names that that they give to to that that period of time, but you observe the whole the whole sequence of the sleep dream with the pause in it, mm -hmm. and and uh, so then I I learned that I could keep that dream going at a muted level when I got up and used the bathroom in the middle of the night. Right. Yeah. And then, and, and then when I went back to sleep to, to uh, put it back at its higher level of, of, of functioning or observation. And and if I didn't like the way the dream was ending, I could change the ending with it. So th those are unusual experiences and degrees of control that you get with mind control that right. the you know, uh, average person doesn't have. And when you're in the dreams, are you the observer of the dreams or are you actually experiencing yourself doing whatever is happening in the dream? You know, uh, lucid dreamers don't dream lucidly, meaning that they are aware all the time that they're dreaming, that that uh, I'm I'm uh, watching my dream and I'm aware that that I'm watching my dream. Mm -hmm. uh, but we do it a, a lot of the time. And occasionally I will do a whole sequence. I mean, I might be awake lucidly and dreaming for say two hours straight or three mm -hmm. hours and and that's that's fairly unusual but what it does it gives you insight into what your brain is doing that the normal dreamer doesn't have yes and that's what i wanted to ask you about how that how paying attention to our dreams really opens us up to more self-awareness can you talk a little bit about that uh you know i i wrote a a, a book called um uh, dreaming uh, uh, and uh, uh, dreams, creativity, and mental mental health uh, that I, I published in 2012, mm -hmm. and 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 I it, with the word creativity, what I'm saying is that when you remain lucid, the information that's being exchanged between the automatic part of your brain, the the old primitive part, and the higher level part that you and I have that make us aware and, and give us a sense of, of having a strong self that by remaining lucid, the exchange that goes on between memories and, and, and the functions of the older part of the brain and the newer part of the brain uh, opens up more what I call neuronal 
uh, workspace, workspace in, in your brain between two levels that normally aren't, aren't uh, that lucid, uh, you know, between themselves. So that by opening up that workspace from, from this conception, uh, you uh, are much more cr uh, creative because when, mm -hmm. when, you, when you dream, we know that when you dream, uh, particularly in REM dreaming, the, the, the brain searches for weak associations. Where in waking, if I have a, a problem or something that I want to solve, I I am using strong associations. I mean, I, I'm looking at things that that seem relevant. I I need to get ready for for this interview, so mm -hmm. I'm going to review my book and make sure that uh, various things are, are are there when I when I want to access them. But when you dream, it goes off into all kinds of little things. Maybe it's associating. Uh, getting ready for for this um, interview with when I was a professor or something that I read before, just right. weak associations. So there's a whole difference. So what what happens uh, with long term lucidity is that you are accessing uh, in normal uh, waking states weak associations that that typically wouldn't be there for the average person in terms of how the brain normally works. So you you discover all kinds of things about how how your brain operates in sleep and lucidity and in waking that gives you uh, uh, insight that you never had before. Yeah, and that's fascinating about that insight because I know, and I'm sure everyone listening has had those dreams that are are something weird, right? There's something that seems well. Why would I dream about that? Like there was one dream I used to dream a lot, it, not so much anymore, but it was where I was. Like I was enrolled in college, but I had never been to class for a day. And it was like the final week, you know, it was the final week of class and I was supposed to be taking finals. And I was obviously unprepared because I had never went to class and which is totally the opposite of my personality. Because in, when I was in school, I was very much, you know, studying and, and making sure I was there all the time, you know, and that. And so I remember having that dream repeatedly and looking that up about what, you know, what does this mean? And if, if I remember right, that was something related to stress or the way I, I process stress with something going on in my life. But it was, that dream was so, it, it felt so, um, almost silly a lot of times because I would be in some college setting where, you know, everybody would be looking at me. I think I remember one time, like I didn't have a pair of pants on or something like just total random things. So, so when we have dreams like that, it, it can be easy to just laugh them off or feel like, um, you know, that they're insignificant, but it sounds like from what you're saying, every single thing that we're dreaming has meaning in some way. You're, you're addressing, uh, you know, a central message in my book. Uh, and that is how, emotion gets transferred into dream imagery mm -hmm. and i call this bottom up imaging meaning that when you when you have a feeling of anxiety or happiness uh, but but uh, typically we remember the the negative things the anxiety or or, or the pain uh, and i call that image transformation that's image transformations of, of the brain mind emotions get uh, made into concrete things or, or i say concretization they're made concrete into imagery and and once you learn how emotions are made into images and, and that can be visual it can be uh, tactile uh, touching uh it can be sound uh, and it can be smell or or, or taste as well but uh, usually it's it's a, a visual or it's auditory uh and and, and sometimes tactile but not not as often 
Mm-hmm. So th- those get transferred into into things that you can see in your dreams, like like you're the the, the movie uh, director and and scriptwriter. Uh, you you are both of those. Right. And conversely, uh, and this this was a debate that went on uh, oh more than twenty years ago between uh, uh, Hobson and and some uh, other well known people who were critical of of him uh, as a dream researcher. Uh, concepts get turned back into emotions mm-hmm. in dreams as well and so uh, this is a bi-directional process so i, I give um, a fair number of examples of of uh, different emotions um, uh, different feelings uh in the bi-directionality of of the imaging and the sensory process that that, that occur in there but but what you are doing is is, is telling me about a very typical dream that uh, that we students uh, uh, you know, I have, right. and I still, I still have those when I'm writing a book and, and I'm anxious about getting done or criticism of it or, or something. I go into all kinds of, of university settings. Sometimes I'm a professor. Sometimes I'm a student. I can't find my classroom. I can't yes, find Yes. Yes. I have that one too. Coach, yes. You know, yes. and on mm-hmm. and on it goes that that's, that's that concrete process of turning emotions into visuals in our dreams and once you understand that it opens up a whole world of fascination to observe your own dreams because you're now understanding uh what's causing them yes you know and i had another very interesting experience with that as it relates to emotions and in our day-to-day life and as it relates to dreams um probably for i'm going to say 20 some years, I had a dream about an ex-boyfriend from high school, not somebody in the modern day that I had any, it wasn't something like where I was thinking we were going to get together later in life or something like it was absolutely nothing like that. It was every, and I would say this happened five to six nights a week. I would dream of this person. And in some scenario of, um, you know, and it was almost always like I was trying to follow up after him or, um, like being looked down upon in some way. And I, I hated talking about this dream because I felt stupid that I was dreaming about somebody from 20 years ago who I had no contact with, didn't care about in this day when I would wake up. But those dreams were so impactful because I would, I would wake up from those feeling, um, it, would, it would affect my day, my emotions. I would wake up sometimes in a bad mood or I would wake up feeling more anxious or something. And a couple of years ago, I was working with um, a therapist and I was talking through some of my feelings about feeling alone. And long story short, we had, she had asked me some questions about what that, what that word alone meant to me and what I had felt in that dream. And what I had realized is that that description of alone was how I felt every time in that dream, like those, those same emotions came up and it was this repeating dream of this, this fear I had of being alone that kept coming up in that dream. And when I was able to realize that, what that was about and what internally was going on all of those years. It it was fascinating to me. First off, fascinating that it took me 20 years to actually get to the point where I could figure out what that was, but it it was such a, that connection that you're talking about with the emotions and then what's actually going on in our dreams. It was such a really, really interesting moment for me to see that about myself. What's, What's nice about understanding the image transformation is that it saves you a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I've had uh, dreams within the past month of of a uh, old high school uh, friend and she really wasn't a girlfriend. We had we had one date and after uh, we were adults, she was a, uh, 
uh, uh, pianist and, and developed a, a particular program that she sold nationally and consulted with. Mm-hmm. And so a, a couple of times she and I had lunch and, and just chatted. But, uh, but within the past month, uh, one of my dreams, I had a romantic relationship with her. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, how silly. And, and, and a lot of people, uh, because it affects their conscience, especially if you're, you're married or you're in a relationship, and here in your dream, you're having a romantic encounter right. with, a, with an old friend. Yes. And those are just automatic things that happen. And that's natural and normal for all of us. So I just I discuss uh, some of those. But I also have a new book where I go into uh, a lot more more detail on that. Uh, because we spend time agonizing over this that's unnecessary. Yeah, yeah you, know, or you feel I, guilty I about it. Or, yeah. About dreams and, and yeah. what it means. And, and a lot of that is due to the fact that, that, that Freud interpreted dreams for most of us. And he's the yeah. most wide, still the most widely read dream interpreter out there. And he's, he's really like, uh, like reading a lot of other mythology. Uh, he, he gets something straight uh, uh, that uh, even Aristotle over 2,000 years ago got straight. And a lot of the rest of it, he misses the image transformations altogether. He, he calls, yeah. you know, the manifest and, and uh, content and, and so on. And uh, it to- totally misses it. So. Yeah. And, and so your book, I mean, you cover all the, the basis, anyone who would want to understand dreaming, you know, would be able to get from this. So you talk about the um, in dream interpretations about how this affects us emotionally and even, um, you know, our day-to-day stress and how that impacts our dreams. I know you also touch in the book about being able to interpret our dreams and the images that we see um, help us answer things like, you know, what is consciousness? And even that understanding of how our mind works, where sometimes we feel like there may be another person in there or, you know, this called other names, you know, soul, ego, you know, whatever a person chooses to call it. But, um, so you, 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 you cover that, that kind of, those kind of questions that I think people have that are natural when we think about dreams. Do you want to touch on that just a little bit too? Yeah, we, uh, we all, because we have secondary consciousness, which means that we're aware that we're aware we have, we can look in the mirror and we can say that's a Glenn or that's Sloan. Uh, we recognize uh, ourselves. So when you look at the image transformation between primary and secondary consciousness, and you realize that secondary consciousness is something that humans have that say squirrels probably don't have or mice mm-hmm. probably don't have. Right. And recognize where that, that comes from. The, the idea of, of a self or an ego uh, historically has been called soul. Mm-hmm. And that's been true uh, across cultures or it's been translated as soul because if you go into hundreds of different pre, uh, preliterate cultures, they still have an idea that there's that little person in the brain that we call ego or self uh, and, and they, called it, uh, they called it soul. So you understand uh, where the idea of, of soul or the concept of soul comes from or, or actually where that thing that feels like it is a, a little person uh, and technically we call it a homunculus uh, uh, in, in the brain where that, where that comes from. And neuroscience and psychologists and dream researchers have struggled with that along with philosophers and theologians for ages. Mm-hmm. And so all that stuff becomes rather, rather clear 
and, and understood these are natural processes. This is part of, of becoming human. And we go back and, and now we can uh, trace it in the, in the third trimester of the fetus, how the fetus is beginning to learn things like its mom's voice, uh, mom's taste, mom's uh, music. And it's, it has familiarity with all those things by the time it, it, it enters the world. So we, we see the early development of the self coming from that and, and, and how it grows, uh, you know, as we, as we tickle and play with the baby and, and, uh, and be part of its life and, and, and teach it to really to be fully human. Uh, and it's, it's a marvelous process that, that we, can, we can observe, we can share, we can be part of. But, but what all of that tells me, uh, and I think it tells all, uh, each one of us, is that if, if you feel alone in the world, it is your choice. Mm-hmm. Because by nature, within your DNA, you know, the way the universe is put together, you and I are made to share our world with each other. And we have brains that, uh, that accommodate that. Yeah. And so it, 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 it is a choice to be alone or it, it is a choice to be part of, of Sloan's life and Glenn's life and, 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 and the friends that we, we have out there. And that's the marvelous thing, uh, you know, about it. The materialism says that we, we are just uh, cells uh, and biochemistry and uh, reflective learning. But when we get into dreams and being able to control them in other states of consciousness, we realize that uh, that's not correct. Yeah. Know? Old materialism is, is, is a figment of the imagination because you and I have the capacity you know, to love each other, to care for each other, to be part of each other's life, to share uh, feelings. And that becomes more understandable and explicit when we make dream life part of our 24 hours a day. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so well said. Glenn, this has been an amazing conversation. Your, your knowledge of dreams and your experience. And, and even, I love how you, you know, at the beginning, you told us how you, you, did this for yourself, right? you made a choice to learn how to do these things so you could have a different experience. And, and your, um, I just love stories like that, where people have made a choice to do something different for themselves and experience such better results. So I want to thank you for, for coming on today and talking with us about dreams and about your newest book, uh, Transformations of the Brain Mind, Experiencing the Emergent Supervening Self. Um, before we close out today, what do you hope readers learn or take away after reading your book? I hope that it helps them explore their own dreams and all the wonderful things that we learn when we can begin to take dreams apart in a meaningful way. And, and part of my motivation to, to write the book is to counteract a, a lot of the mythologies that's out there that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you can read books where an acorn means this and, yeah. uh, a snake means that. And, and Freud did that. He had over like 247 or something uh, specific things that, that, that he's following the old mythology. And if, if you're caught up in that mythology, give it up and, <laughs> and learn how the transformations actually occur. So yeah. you can, you can uh, deal with your own anxiety, lead a better life and have more insight, insight into who you are and, and who your fellow human beings are. Yeah. Yeah. Glenn, again, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been an amazing interview. Thanks, Lynn. I appreciate all the, all your time. 
Yes. You can find more about the book, Image Transformations of the Brain Mind, Experiencing the Emergent Supervening Self on Amazon. And I'll link to the books in the show notes. So be sure to check that out. You've been listening to the Books on Air podcast brought to you on webtalkradio.net. You can also hear this podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. I'm Sloan Fremont, and I hope you'll join us for the next Books on Air podcast. Remember, you never know who's going to be here, and you never know what we're going to talk about. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.